This weekend, we celebrate the great feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. At our parish, we'll be having a Eucharistic procession. But at the heart of Corpus Christi is the understanding that under the appearance of bread and wine, that the reality is it's the body and blood of our Lord. His human nature, his divine nature, soul, spirit, this is the reality of the Eucharist, and it's at the heart of it is the sacramental nature of reality. And so for the sacramental imagination, that is the proper understanding of reality, we have images in our mind. This is how we understand. We understand that the world is sacramental. It points to something greater than itself like bread and wine, it's of this world, but that substantially uh, the Eucharist points to the presence of Christ in his human body at the right hand of the Father. And the world, although it is dying, is pointing towards the world that comes, the new creation that's coming into being that you participated in, in your baptism, your confirmation, and your reception of Eucharist. And so there are seven sacraments, and they are the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. There are the sacraments of service, holy orders, and marriage. And then there are the sacraments that deal with the forgiveness of sins and preparation for death. So it's the sacrament of reconciliation, and then the anointing of the sick, the sacrament of the sick what used to be called extramunction, that is the final anointing. And in the seven sacraments that were ordained by Christ, they bring us in baptism into Christ's life, and then at the end of our natural lives, as we prepare for this life above nature, a supernatural life, an embodied life after our death, it's this anointing of the sick or extramunction, the last rites, that prepare us for that. But those seven sacraments aren't the limit of um, what, it, what is in this material world that points to Christ. So the sacramental imagination is that all of God's creation points back towards the mystery of God. You know, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis and I think John Paul before them, um, all spoke of the sacramental nature of the church. It points to the marriage between God and humanity. The sacramental nature of the church is the body of Christ in space and time, but also present in heaven. And so as the sacramental nature of the church, we have the church militant, which is the church here at St. Mark participating in the universal church, all the baptized. We have the church suffering, which is the church in purgatory, and then the church in glory, the church triumphant. That's the church in heaven, the communion of the saints. But just see, you make that move from the church militant to the church suffering to the church in triumph, that's a sacramental move. The word sacrament is the Latin word that was used to trans translate 
the Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our word uh, mystery. And that's why you'll see the word mystery used quite freely, especially in St. Paul's writings. And then mysteries are presented quite freely. Um, when Jesus walked on the water, you remember the crowds wondered, how did he get from over that side of the lake to this side of the lake? Kind of a mystery. But to understand that while we perceive the sacramental imagination, how we perceive what is to our five senses, bread and wine, that in the Catholic understanding of reality, this is what Jesus chose to do to connect himself to his people. And that's what the readings in the scripture are about. You know, think of your life as a sacrament, that it is a visible sign of an unseen reality or a visible sign of God's giving grace. You're a creature of grace because of your participation in the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. That the understanding of the sacramental imagination is what underlies Christian poetry. Uh, that you can see that in the here and now, it points to something beyond what is here and now. And so reading the scripture and especially any of the four gospels, what you see is an historical recounting of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And so everything he did was a visible sign of the reality of the Christian pilgrimage through life and to the presence of God. Our lives are sacramental pilgrimages to the extent that we participate uh, as disciples of Christ. And so the very idea of salvation is that you they can't save yourself. That's kind of in, incoherent um, understanding. How can a broken person fix themselves? Or how can someone else equally broken fix you? Um, community is important. But that community of broken people following their Lord and Savior, this is the sacramental imagination. One broken person fixing another broken person or attempting to is psychology or psychiatry. Um, very, very different kinds of things. Um, so to see the sacramental reality present in the Eucharist, this connection with God, is to remember uh, last week's um, presentation on the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. Think about it. God is personal, God is imminent, God is transcendent. Personal is you can have a relationship God, with God. You can enter into a union with God, communion with God, uh, in uh, the respect of being a human in communion with the divine. You do that because that relationship is imminent. It is in the here and now. You're in communion with God when you come to the Eucharist at Mass. But the experience of the personal, imminent connection with Jesus and what he did at the Last Supper that's personal, that's present, participates in the transcendent, that is, the above. And the sacramental imagination is about the horizontal from heaven to earth intersected, uh, I'm sorry, the vertical from heaven to earth intersecting with the horizontal 
which is the church militant, the church striving, the church in your local parish, that that community intersects with the transcendent right at the center of the Mass when you receive uh, communion. And you are there worshiping with God uh, during the time of the consecration. So to be born into the beauty of the faith, to have a sacramental imagination, is to see the world and the suffering and the light of the transcendent nature of the body and blood of Christ, of his life. You know, many have faltered at this point because, boy, you don't have to go much beyond the morning newspaper to understand that our daily experience of reality is anything other than the kingdom of heaven. Um, it's the battles in Ukraine. It's the failures in our family. It's your worries about children and friends. You know, things just seem to break down in this world. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics, uh, basically creation will someday run out of gas. At least that's my appreciation of the second law of thermodynamics because we all run out of gas. We just get old and we get tired and we die. And so without the sacramental imagination, um, life is really suffering with uh, little bits of happiness and joy sprinkled in between. The reason people get so frustrated is they believe that it should all be happiness and we should just avoid pain. That the cross, which is the crux literally of the Christian faith, is where our trust in God meets suffering. And in that suffering, we're broken and as we follow after Christ are transformed, my friend. That's the sacramental imagination. And it's why the Eucharist is the cornerstone, that daily meal of, uh, of the body and blood of Christ that takes our present, uh, personal, imminent lives and we intersect with the transcendent. Yes, we do it through scripture also, uh, but preeminently through the Eucharist, the summit and the source of human faith. What do you do with Christians that just don't see that? They just see it as something they do for God or it's a neat symbol. I, I don't know what to say to them. It's such an impoverished understanding of life. What we Catholics have is a robust understanding of the sacramental nature of the world redeemed by Christ. So let's take a moment and let's turn together to the readings for Corpus Christi. So the three readings I want to go through on the Feast of Corpus Christi is Genesis 14. It's the story of uh, the priest of Salem, the priest of peace, Melchizedek, coming out and giving the gifts of bread and wine to, uh, to Abraham or Abram. And Abraham gives him, Abram at that time, gives him a tenth of everything, tithes to him. The second reading is 1 Corinthians. And it's the earliest account in writing of the story of the Last Supper. And it's so interesting because it starts out with St. Paul, who was not one of Jesus' disciples during his historic time on earth, who says that the Lord himself told him what he did at that Last Supper when uh, St. Paul had his experience of the resurrection. And then we're going to go to Luke about the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness. And then hopefully tie this all together. So, Genesis. Um, 
Abram has been in battle with these kings that have kidnapped his beloved nephew, Lot. God has given him victory over these kings. And so he's coming back after taking spoils from them. And as he goes by a place that's called Salem, and think of the word shalom because he's the high priest of peace. And probably it's an Old Testament prefiguring of uh, the city of Jerusalem where the house of God will be. But at least in Genesis 14, it's the city of peace, the city of Shalom, Salem. So Melchizedek is a word that literally means the king of righteousness. So it's why the book of Hebrews goes back to Melchizedek and he says that Jesus Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of the Jewish priesthood, the Israelite priesthood of Aaron, but a prehistorical priesthood. And what are the gifts that the king of peace, Melchizedek, gives to Abram, who is the, going to be the father of all of Israel and the church, which is, like St. Paul says, a wild olive shoot uh, grafted to the domestic tree of Israel. That is us, brothers and sisters. Um, what's the gift he gives? Bread and wine. Why does Jesus uh, use bread and wine and that becomes the sacrament of his body and blood, this unbloody sacrifice that participates in the, his crucifixion, which will happen the next day? Because he's bringing back this understanding of this priesthood that goes right to the service of the father of the Jewish people. And so interestingly in the Bible, um, Melchizedek is the first person to be called priest. And in Hebrew, the word is Cohen. So if you know any Jewish men that are named, or women that are named Cohen, they're probably out of the priestly tribe. Um, and then uh, he offers, Melchizedek offers Abram a blessing uh, of thanksgiving for Abram's victory because it was the will of God. And so in response, God, uh, Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Uh, I tell you, at our parish, we truly appreciate your support of the work of the church. But it's this relationship between the priesthood of Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek and this story about Abram. So to take your place in the sacramental imagination, um, you're like Abram who has uh, gone out into this world that God created because Abram created nothing and then offers God these first fruits, these gifts of thanksgiving. And so turning to 1 Corinthians, it's the story of the institution of the blessed sacrament. And so it's such a short reading, let's just do it. Um, 1 Corinthians, just roll down to it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is in this 1 Corinthians uh, community that said, having these great turmoils, these conflicts with each other. And St. Paul says, prepare yourself for the reception of the Lord. If it was just a symbol, why would you have to prepare yourself? But if you want to meet the Lord, you have to be ready for it. This is everything in the modern Catholic Church about Eucharistic coherence. Try to live a life that looks Christian so that when you come to communion with God, you have some hope of being able to stand in his presence. And so here's what St. Paul said was given to him. Brothers and sisters, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night he was handed over, took bread and after he had given thanks, broke it 
and said, this is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So why is 1 Corinthians important? I think we all were at some time thought that it's the four Gospels that were the first things in, in Christian reality. Well, the Gospels are. That's the kerygma. That's the preaching of the church. And St. Paul talks about it in the very end of um, Corinthians, what his preaching is. And it sounds something uh, like the basis for our Nicene Creed, which we discussed uh, briefly last week. Um, but that in terms of Christian practice, even at 1 Corinthians, it's one of Paul's earliest letters, one of the oldest documents in Christianity, it's very clear that the celebration of the Eucharist is a stable part of Christian community. Um, you know, the, the idea of the mystery of the Trinity was, remember, uh, we talked about Jesus uh, keeps referring to himself as the I am. When they come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am, and they all fall back in terror. When he gets into the boat in the storm on the sea, when the disciples are very afraid, we have this translation that says, don't worry, it's me. But really, the literal Greek is ego me, which is I am. It just doesn't sound right. Uh, in, the, in the English language, if you're trying to make it colloquial. Don't worry, guys, I am. But that is what the gospel literally says. And so the I am that appeared to Moses is the same I am that said, let there be light, let there be heavens and earth, let there be creatures in the sea and creatures on the land. God creates through his word. That's why they say, especially in first uh, first chapter of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God. And so when at the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is my bread, this is my body, this is my blood. The I am brings things into being just through his Word and his command over creation. Why do we uh, take the words of institution, uh, literally, that this is the body and blood of Christ, even though our five senses say it's bread and wine, it's because Jesus was introducing us into the sacramental imagination. Um, Jesus as the high priest Melchizedek, Jesus as food for us in the journey. If God can be a human being, God can be bread and wine. Why, friends, because he's God. And what's the purpose of it? And that's the gospel. And so uh, the story that happens before almost all the gospels, I think all the gospels, because all the gospels, uh, all the evangelists thought it was very important, was the feeding of the people in the wilderness. And Mark, it's told twice. It's told once in the other gospels. But do you remember Jesus is out teaching and he says, uh, let's give them something to eat. Oh, where would we get the food to eat? You know this story, right? But think about the structure of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 with the structure of the story that St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, in the institution narrative of the Eucharist. 
So in the feeding of the five thousands, the gospel would say, Jesus took the five loaves. In St. Paul's account of that supper, it said, Jesus took the bread. In the feeding of the 5,000, the gospel will say, Jesus blessed the loaves. In the story that St. Paul tells, and I'll tell you also, it's the story that um, is told in Luke of the Last Supper, because Luke is Paul's companion. They tell the same story. But Jesus blessed the loaves at the feeding of the 5,000. And in Luke and Paul, Jesus blessed the bread at the Last Supper. Jesus broke the loaves in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus broke the bread at the Last Supper. Jesus gave them to the disciples seated on the grass in the feeding of the 5,000. At the Last Supper, he gave it to his disciples there in the upper room. And so the imaginative, the sacramental leap you go to is that this meal in the upper room, this meal at our parish, is a joiner in this provision of God like man in the desert, because it all goes back to the story of Exodus, where God fed the people in the desert with the loaves. So how do you reduce that to just a symbol without making the story absolutely meaningless? It makes no sense not to believe in the real presence. So Corpus Christi, the sacramental imagination, you eat and drink the blood of Christ, or at least we will hopefully someday when we work our way through this whole COVID thing when it comes to the blessed cup. We just wait and see what happens on that. But for the sacramental imagination, we're on a journey. We're walking through a desert. We know where it's going, and Christ is feeding us on the way. Now, let's take a moment and think about the implications of this sacramental understanding of reality. Think about the sacramental imagination in the human body, because the Eucharist is about Jesus' human body. It's also about his divine nature. But that the body becomes the sacramental image of this saving feast, that it's his body offered up for our salvation on the cross. And by our consuming that sacrifice at communion, the Eucharist, We partake in this body that has passed through death and now lives forever. It says something about the sanctity, not just of the human being in a broadly general sense, as fundamental as that is, but the sacramentality of our bodies, that somehow they're the image of this resurrected body that we will enjoy. See in our country all the ways that the sacramental reality of the body has been undermined. Uh, Start with the sin of slavery, which is one of the founding sins of our culture. Been there from the beginning. Jim Crow that followed that and the vestiges uh, of racism that are still amongst us, um, which is uh, unbelievable. But it it becomes this weaponized, um, politicized way of degrading other people's bodies. Abortion is a very um, obvious one where we degrade the body. We say it's not a human being because uh, they haven't passed a math test yet. The idea that the human being is just the capacity for rationality. No, we are embodied creatures. And when you destroy the body in the womb, you're destroying a human being. It makes it so much harder for people to believe that their lives are important when we take Uh, other people's bodies and racism or abortion 
and we make them under unimportant. Or how we treated American Indians, the genocide against their bodies. How about the death penalty? Arizona just recently executed two men that were successfully being incarcerated. Uh, why? Uh, is life sacred to the people that, that believe in the death penalty? Why is it sacred in when it's your little child, but not in the womb, and not when that child's on death row? You know, the other place where we sin against the sacramentality of the body, it's in our funeral practices. You know, I was reading this book called The Republic of Suffering by Drew Gilpin, and it was about death and the Civil War, and how the slaughter of the Civil War changed how people thought about death. You know, in our country, burial practices before the Civil War uh, basically meant you died, and they got you into the ground as soon as they could. Um, but what happened in the Civil War is because people died so far away from home, if the body could be salvaged, if they could find the body, then uh, embalmers followed the Union Army along. And I, as I remember, they would embalm an officer for 25 bucks, but an uh, uh, enlisted man for 10 bucks. And that way you could be put into a box and shipped home where your family could bury you. In Mexico, I still think they bury you the next day. But what Dr. Gilpin, who used to be the president of Harvard University, po pointed out about it, is it changed how people thought about death, how they thought about the body and the preservation of the body. Well, we all kind of know what happened after that. Gosh, funerals have gotten so expensive, in large parts because of this in process of embalming, the expensive caskets, and all of these things. It's, it's costly to die, friends. If you want to save a buck, avoid dying. Otherwise, you know, save for your final future uh, what's really coming for you. And so the church has now made allowances for cremation, but uh, has pointed out that the ashes of that body are no less the uh, sacramental reality of the human being. It is their mortal remains. And so whether it's a casket or a cremated remains, you treat it as a body and you uh, inter it in consecrated ground. The Vatican just recently set out a document saying that there's a new technology uh, that's supposed to be uh, driven by conservationists where they take your body, you reduce you to liquid through some process, and then they pour you out as fertilizer on the ground. Um, but remember the sacramental imagination. You are walking with Christ. The understanding of Christianity is this ritual means of life that gives meaning to human life. What if they just treat you like a product? What if you're just treated like fertilizer? I know if you ever heard of Jeremy Bentham. He was one of the English philosophers who founded the uh, moral philosophy of utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which has had a huge effect on American culture, and I think not for the better. You know, what he did is he had his body stuffed and mounted, and I think he's sitting there in the British Museum. I've seen stories of his uh, mounted corpse, like you'd mount the head of a deer. Um, how is this, he was, I think, an atheist, how is this, this ritual participation in the life of Christ? What if your life all just becomes about efficiencies, about the here and now, and you think that that's what makes you a good person? I'm not even sure you're being wise about the things of this world.
because you're saying you can live this life without God. And people living this life without God have kind of gotten us to where we are today. Or even people with, I'd say, inadequate Christian faiths, where they just reduce it to mere morality. And there's nothing wrong with morality. But Jesus is about so much more than reality. We call that the sacramental imagination, how everything points to God, especially those seven sacraments that Jesus chose to be vessels of, self, of uh, saving grace, of sanctifying grace. You know, one of the favorite images of God in the Old Testament was God was this cloud. He came down as a cloud and fire on Sinai, a cloud of glory into the temple. But that cloud wasn't God. The cloud is this reality that veils the face of God from us. Um, how we respond to God by remembering our death, the old Christian phrase, memento mori, what our true situation is, should, I think, for the prudent person, suggest that they should live their lives that are prudent not just about the things of this world, but especially of the world to come. How many Christian saints hold a skull in their hand? Because even Christian saints who believe they will live forever realize they will die. So the sacramental imagination, present at the cross, in John's gospel, when the centurion puts the spear into Jesus' side and blood and water came out, and the church said, baptism and Eucharist, the sacramental imagination, the new temple, the body of Jesus pierced for us, and the saving graces of the sacraments coming out. So this Sunday, if we celebrate Corpus Christi and have our, our procession, let's remember that man lives by more than just bread alone, lives on every word from the mouth of God, and how our imaginations transcend reality because God has deigned to reveal himself to us. Happy Feast of Corpus Christi, friends.